0: Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9:30 a.m. or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. Days of Jesus is where our focus has been last week and then leading right into next weekend. Today's message will take place on the Monday before Jesus will experience human suffering at its highest level. He will also simultaneously experience spiritual suffering at an even greater level as he is separated from his Heavenly Father as a substitutionary perfect sacrifice. For all the sins of mankind, both past and present. There are five days left of Christ's pre cross, pre cross life and ministry. Jesus is 33 years old and has spent the last three and a half years in focused and intense ministry, his divine mission coming to an end. God's rescue mission of humanity is in its final days of preparation. The last week, the last week. Very few of us will know with certainty when our last week will be. We may know that it's coming soon. But Jesus knew with perfect clarity that the end was here. He also knew that his experience of this final week would be historically significant. But this fact would not make it any easier on him. The last week of Christ is of extreme importance as we track through the scriptures. Because we're watching and tracking with eyewitness accounts. Of those that walked with Jesus. So, what he planned and prioritized in his final days is very important for us to note and learn from. So, today is Monday in our text. Last week, Pastor John unpacked what happened the Sunday or the day prior to our text where we'll be at this morning. And we looked at his humble coronation, or what many are celebrating today. And what we celebrate is Palm Sunday. Historians range. In their details of the account, but there was a minimal crowd size of at least tens of thousands, up to possibly 200,000 people who lined the streets to recognize Jesus as their king, liberator, and savior of their nation. So the event of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey places immense attention on Jesus in Jerusalem, which is where we'll be this morning, especially among those who oppose him and look at him as a political foe. The Jewish leaders are now at the peak, and it's only going to get worse, at the peak of their anger and malice. I don't even know how they can get more angry, but today they will experience extreme anger and malice towards this lowlife from Nazareth. After Sunday's events, Jesus has retreated. So last night, as we track through the week, Jesus retreated to Bethany for a place and time of rest, which is the home of Mary and Martha and their brother who? Lazarus. Lazarus, Lazarus, who is alive and well. Why? Because Jesus has raised him from the dead. It was Passover week in Jerusalem. This is a national event. How many of you have ever been to New York City between Thanksgiving and New Year's? Anybody ever gone to New York City during that time? There is an audible buzz that happens when there is a lot of people in a tight space. And right now, Jerusalem was a buzz of activity. As one of the largest and most important religious gatherings in Israel, each year an influx of up to 2 million people would descend on and around Jerusalem. And they would come from near and far. The inns, homes, and Airbnbs would be overflowing with people. If you were lucky, you had family you could stay with in Jerusalem. But many did not have this luxury. So due to this fact, the perimeter around Jerusalem would have been surrounded by little tent cities for as far as the eye could see. Groups would come, they would travel together, set up literally campgrounds outside of Jerusalem because it was packed. Judaistic law required that if you were to participate in the Passover, you must stay in Jerusalem the night before. So what they would do is they would extend the city limits during the Passover so that everyone was okay to participate. So as we begin our passage this morning, Jesus will be walking back down the road from Bethany to Jerusalem. And this is the setting and context of our three verses, verses 45 to 48 that we'll be focused on this morning. But there is something recorded um, before, kind of bridges Pastor John's passage and my passage. that I think is often forgotten because we focus on the triumphal entry and then we jump right to this, this story of the cleansing of the temple. And God gives us three verses that I just want to use as kind of a leap pad or a launch pad into our text this morning. And that's verses 41 to 44. So draw your attention and focus on these three verses. Because here I believe we witness the raw pain and the real purpose of what Jesus is about to do in our text this morning. The raw pain and the real purpose of what's about to happen. So let me just read these three verses for you. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. The raw pain starts right there in verse 41. And when Jesus drew near, so he's walking to Jerusalem. it says that he stopped. And looked over Jerusalem and he wept. He wept. The most painful moments in our lives, what are the most painful moments in our lives? They're the moments when something happens to those we love the most. It's when something happens to those we love the most. And as you picture Jesus, okay, pausing on this trip down to Jerusalem, he's pausing to look down on those he loves deeply to those he loves deeply. He understood that they were missing, missing the whole thing that was about to take place. The spiritual salvation, the promise of the covenant that was given all the way back at Abraham, blind, not aware, missing it. And this broke him. You can see the emotional pain in his words. They're palpable in his words because then he goes through and he just shares openly his thoughts. He talks about what is taking place. He knows the destruction that's coming to the temple and to Jerusalem because of the way they choose. And he knows the destruction spiritually, which is even greater than what will happen in just a short time. Seventy years later, Roman conquest, Jerusalem, temple torn down, will never be the same. You go visit there now, it's rubble, even to today. And I think there's something important to remember. And it's, it's a theological point that I think it must be remembered as we go through this, this whole week leading into next Sunday, for us as Christians, it's something very important is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was fully God and fully man. We see that in his emotion. You know, we often overlook, I believe, the humanity of Jesus by focusing only on Jesus' divinity. We kind of replace his humanity with his divinity. And so in our superhero age, we kind of rationalize somehow that things felt different for Jesus or that he didn't experience things as bad as we would because he was God like he had some special powers to reduce pain or just ignore his emotions and tap tap into some special communication directly with heaven that kind of just made all his troubles go away. How did Jesus communicate with God while he was on earth? He prayed. Same as you and I. So Jesus uh, was not, um, he experienced everything. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect had been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help him in time of need. What does that mean that the high priest Jesus was able to sympathize with our weaknesses? The day that you and I are born, we begin to die. It's not a weird, sad, kind of sucks the air right out of the room thought, but it's true. The day we are born, we begin to die. Our bodies are weakening as we grow. And it says there that Jesus is able to identify with our humanity our weaknesses. And therefore, he was tempted in every way. And so it's important just to think through and really process. We can't spend a whole theology class on this. And maybe we can in one of our equipping classes. It's important for us to understand that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. So why is that important for this morning? Well, in our passage today, Jesus is going to boldly declare, and I'm talking boldly declare, his divine authority. For, for everyone that's there and then for every person that will live after this, Jesus is about to get real. And he's about to explain, I am here on a divine mission. But I don't want us to lose the fact that Jesus was fully human throughout this whole week. And why does that matter? Because our confidence in Christ, if you sit here today, a child of Christ, your confidence in Christ rests a lot in the fact that Jesus chose to come down and become like us and to be fully human to experience and put on the shelf for a while some of his divine attributes that he carried from from the beginning of time. And one of the beautiful truths and why we can take confidence is Jesus never asked us to do something that he didn't already do. Some examples of that. What's he asked us to do? Die to yourself. How hard is it to die to ourselves? Jesus says, I already did it. You can do it. Submit to the Father's will. Jesus did it. Don't submit to temptation. He didn't do it. Love those who persecute you. Jesus said, I did that. We see that on the cross. Colossians 2, nine. for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. One of the most amazing truths about Jesus, as we understand all he experienced, is that he was fully God and fully human. So not only as he sits up there in Jerusalem and, and makes his entrance into Jerusalem, and officially the temple on the second day, I want us to see that pain. But then secondly, in verse 44, it's almost as if he stops for a moment and it's like to gather, okay, what is the purpose of which I'm doing this for? Like why am I doing this right now in this moment? And I just want to take you to the last sentence there in 44. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. These might be some of the most sobering words ever spoken on this earth. You did not know the time of your visitation. Going all the way back to the garden, man rejects God and says, I don't want anything to do with God. I, I am God. All the way through to the flood, when God says, men reject me. They don't want anything to do with me. All the way forward to now as Jesus stands on the hill as their Savior, the promised one that came, and he faces now again, once again, rejection. And Jesus knows the only answer for this rejection is redemption, and that's why He's there. And ready to do what he's about to do. And so, with that understanding, that's just a, I think it was, I didn't want to skip over those verses because I think it's the under, important to understand the pain, the raw pain, and then the real purpose of which Jesus is coming here to do what he's about to do. So, verse 45, that's where we find ourselves. Jerusalem is packed because of the Passover. He's just the day before had this triumphal entry, and we read verse 45 together. Matthew 21, 12 to 17, and Mark 11, 15 to 19. I would encourage you as a follow-up to this to just go check out those passages because each one gives some details that gives you a fuller picture of what was taking place. Um, And it's a fascinating thing. I had two initial responses when I first read these verses as I began to study and pray through these. First was I took me right back to Sunday school where this is one of the strangest, most weird stories that a teacher has to tell a kid of Jesus entering the temple. It's a challenging one. And then when they would add the flannel graphs, um, like, you weren't sure if he was, like, beating animals with a whip or what he was doing. And it was just confusing. Like, it's a hard concept. It was just kind of to me, like, this is the story where Jesus just gets really angry as a little kid. And so the last few weeks, have I have unpacked this, it has been such an amazing blessing to see the deepness and richness. Those times are important. That, that gave me a foundation of understanding the story when I was young. But now to study this and realize what was actually happening here has been so rich. In fact, uh, Fridays before I preach, I usually try to go to Starbucks and just write out my sermon, okay? I manuscript it and then later as the weekend goes on, I turn it into an outline, okay? Uh, I'm there and I'm reflecting for the first time those verses that come before this where Jesus is looking out and he's just broken over what he's about to do. There's this, this holy righteous anger that is building in him as he looks out broken. And I was typing away and I didn't realize that I started to like, get teary-eyed, and then you know, like, you realize in a moment that you're in a public place, and you look up, and the guy's sitting right over there, and he didn't, we made the awkward eye contact thing, where I was like, and he didn't know, like, like what to do. It was really, really awkward, okay? But it was just a beautiful experience to retype this and relearn what God is doing here. And then next, my mind, as I read these, my mind naturally went to Newton's third law of motion, okay? How else do you get here? How many of you, okay, Know Sir Isaac Newton. Okay, you know that name? Brilliant mind. So his third law of motion: for every what action, there is an equal. Wow, awesome! How, that that was good. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So not only was he a brilliant mind in the work that he did with gravity, but he obviously had great hair too. Okay, um, and so so for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So for me, simple-minded. I knew that phrase, but then what does that actually mean? So I just want to read, um, here's a description of, in in greater detail, of Newton's third law of motion. So here it is. A force is a push or a pull that acts upon an object as a result of its interaction with another object. Forces result from interactions. Forces result from contact interactions, normal, frictional, tensional, and applied forces are examples of contact forces. And other forces are the result of action at a distance interactions, gravitational electrical, and magnetic forces. I want to draw our attention to the contact interactions. Normal, frictional, tensional, and applied forces are examples of contact forces. When I read this passage, I was like, there's three very specific actions that Jesus is going to take here. And it's intentional because he wants there to be a reaction due to the action that he is about to give. And so that's what we're going to do as we walk through our passage, and they're very... They're very frictional and intentional, okay? What he's about to do is very, very uh, frictional and intentional. And he's going to do it with applied force, okay? He's going to do it with applied force. So this morning, all we're going to do is look at three actions and then the reactions that came out of those. So number one, he entered the temple. First verse, he entered the temple. Enough said. This is as deliberate as you can get. This is important because it's what it identified, You see, Jesus was on a divine mission, not an earthly mission. So as he marches into Jerusalem, the people are abuzz that this is their liberator, and instead of going to Fort Antonio, which is the fort that's sitting right there as you enter, where the Roman garrison would have been, he goes right past that and goes right to the um, temple. Remember the disappointment that is building among the people as they realize this Jesus is our savior, but he's not going to liberate us from Roman rule. He walks right To the temple. The temple represented the heart of Israel. It was spiritual, political, and social epicenter. It was raised up above everything else. It signified the centrality of everything that happened in Israel. Jesus was not worried about Roman corruption. Okay? He was worried about religious corruption that was taking place. Wasn't worried about Roman corruption. So what was the temple? Well, I won't go all through the whole thing, but if you understand a little bit of the Old Testament, it was literally the place where God met with his people. He met with them. It was where God forgave sins, where God was worshiped by the reading of the Torah, by the singing of the Psalms. But worship had become secondary to everything else that was taking place. And we'll talk about that in a second. So, what was the reaction? He goes right to the temple. What was Jesus doing in that moment? He was after something greater. He wanted heart transformation. He wanted heart transformation. Jesus went to the temple because of what it symbolized, and and what he was really driving at is, hey, I'm going at what you're worshiping, what you're all about. Let's go to the foundation issue that is taking place right now in this temple, and it's your heart. It's what you are worshiping. You know, nothing's changed, has it? (coughs) Excuse me. The Bible talks about the heart over 900 times in Scripture because that's what matters to God is our hearts. And Jesus was no different in his earthly ministry. Jesus, his whole life was about getting to the heart. The woman at the well, all of her issues, all of her misunderstandings, what did Jesus want to get to with her? What she was worshiping. What was true worship? The young rich ruler, what's he do? I've done everything well, God. And Jesus says, okay, you want to follow me? Go sell all your riches and follow me. And what did the man say? He says he walked away somber and disheartened. Why? Because he worshiped his riches, and Jesus was like, If you're going to be a follower of me, that's what you're going to worship is me, not what you have. I wonder, uh, actually, I can say this the fact. I-, I think if Jesus came back and it was modern time, I really don't think he'd go to Washington, D.C., I think he would go to churches where people. Claim to be worshiping God, and he would say, we need to cleanse this. We need to do some work right here, right now. The whole New Testament is about that, staying focused on worshiping Christ and keeping the gospel central to why we gather and what we do in our individual lives and in our corporate lives. And so I think this is a hard thing for us as believers. We are distracted by the social and political things in our world, and we should be heartbroken about what's happening in our world. But the answer can't be, you know, Jesus just returned and you know, took out all the bad politicians, the world would be better. Would it be? You want to talk about the political situation at this time? The whole thing, the whole reason that Jesus was crucified is it was a political game. You had one side, the Jewish leader saying, this is what needs to happen. And the other Romans, hey, we just need to keep the peace here, okay? And it was a political situation. Jesus goes right at the heart of their worship. Doesn't deal with any of the other things that are happening. So that's the first action reaction. Number two, same verse. Verse 45, and he entered the temple... And he began to drive out those who sold. This, I don't even know what this would look like. And I'm not going to pretend to, to like think what this looks like. We can just go with what scripture tells us. Um, did Jesus literally drive out everyone in the temple? Yes. How he did that, what this looked like, is one thing on my questions for heaven. I don't even know if we'll ask questions in heaven or care. But this is one that I would love to say, what did this look like As you cleanse the temple. And here's why. I want to show you a picture of what the temple would have looked like during this time. Okay? Um, It might be challenging to see. But this outer courtyard right here is the court of the Gentiles. This is where Jesus would enter from. And basically as he walks in, it's like Jake's on steroids. Okay? It is a massive flea market of shops. Literally the Hebrew translation is shops. Okay? And all on the outside as you get closer and closer. Then you had where only... the Uh, The Israelites could go, then you had only where men could go, and then you had only where the priests could go on the inner, and then you had the Holy of Holies. Okay, on this outer courtyard, especially Passover week, this was the biggest thing you would imagine and had become literally um, a shopping center in the court of the Gentiles, a retail center. There's there's historical records that on a given Passover, there was up to 260,000 lambs slaughtered. 260,000 lambs. So imagine the amount of animals happening in here. Plus people had to eat. So there was food being sold, all the things. So you say, okay, Jesus goes in and he, in in other passages, says he threw over the tables of the money changers, uh, went after those who were selling doves and the animals there. So why did he do this? What was the corruption? Well, from the top down, um, Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests during this time. And they literally used this time to become filthy, filthy rich. This was a time for making money. They loved it. They would franchise, sell spots to, to vendors to say, yeah, you can have that spot um, as long as you work and give me the money. It was a, it was a mafia, okay? Um, and, yeah, you can have that spot, but you're going to give me this percentage or you're going to be in trouble and not be back. Also, you say, well, why didn't just people bring their own animals then? Why couldn't they bring their, they were all, most of them were shepherds, farmers in that day and age. Why didn't they just bring their own lambs to slaughter? Well, who approved the lambs to say that they were spotless? The priests. So if they're making money and they, someone brings their lamb, ah, sorry, don't think that's a good one. You're going to need to go down to the courtyard and buy a sheep that's going to be okay and be proven so that you can sacrifice this and so that God will forgive your sins. You see this corruption that's taking place. They would also inflate the prices, so that a dove in modern time would be 10 cents, would be selling for $10 equivalent of this time. And those were for the poor people that couldn't bring a lamb, they would bring a dove. Money changers would charge a 25% tax. You ever go to another country and you gotta change your currency? Well, there was lots of currency, so as people come there, there's a proven, approved currency the money changers would say, all right, yeah, I'll switch money with you, but there's going to be a 25% surcharge. The priests, the corruption came from the highest levels down, and this is what Jesus goes right at in this moment. In Mark 11:17, Mark 11:16. 16, it says, Jesus drove out every person that was selling and didn't let them take any of their stuff. What does that even look like? I don't know, but it was an amazing, amazing feat. I think part of it was he had a crowd behind him. A lot of people were supporting what he was doing at this time. And so people just kind of ran out of fear and said, I'm getting out of here. But something that I learned this week that I just never realized is that this is a repeat. repeat. So three years earlier, there's a Passover. Jesus is starting his earthly ministry. John chapter 2 is another account. Jesus went directly to the temple and did the same thing that he did now. Except there's even further detail in that one where it actually says he took, that's the one where he took the whip. And you're a child and you're going, what is going on there? Jesus is really angry. That is a time that he did this three years previous. So he starts his ministry and ends his ministry by going right to the temple and cleansing it of the corruption that is taking place during the Passover. So what's the reaction? What is Jesus really going after? What is he declaring? And it's this, submission to divine authority. Submission to divine authority. Why did the priests hate Jesus so much? Because he undermined their authority with the people. They hated him for it. How dare this? But they didn't even care what he was saying. They're like, this man is getting more attention, and he's throwing our whole system of making money into an upheaval. This will be the final straw for the Sadducees. They will now take steps to kill Jesus the next day. They will run to the Roman leaders and bring witnesses to say that Jesus is doing A, B, and C. But you see here, Jesus' authority must be recognized. Jesus claimed in his final words, the Great Commission, all authority is given to me. And in this moment, he's saying, I am here on an authoritative mission by God, and this is why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. My my house is a house of prayer. My house is a house of prayer. He claims but the worship is about him. And these are, he quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah for sake of time. I won't go there. But submission to divine authority a heart that's fully submitted to God recognizes the authority of Jesus Christ and what his mission was here on earth. There's a lot of attacks on this. There's a lot of different viewpoints throughout history and even now where ah, Jesus was like, his body was human, but his mind was like God. And so, like, what he did wasn't really on a divine mission, he was kind of divine, kind of not. We have to fully understand here that he was on a divine mission. Only 40 years later, the Roman army will destroy the temple. And so when you just think about this for a moment, what a picture of what Jesus came to do. You see, Jesus recognized something very important, that the human heart is deceitful above everything else. Our hearts are naturally corrupted by sin. And one of the ways repentance starts in our lives and in the lives of those that you know don't know Christ, it starts when someone recognizes God's divine authority in their life and says, wow, God is God. Jesus is Jesus, and I need to give my life to him. The sin that is is controlling me needs to be completely put on him. And so we see him doing this. Action number three, and this just blows my mind. It says in verse 47, he was teaching daily in the temple. Teaching daily in the temple. (laughs) So he's throwing tables over and and sending people out. And at the same time, he's compassionately loving and healing people and teaching them about who he is. Again, what does this look like? I don't know. Let your imagination take you there. But he's also at the very same time you see the compassion of Jesus as he continues. I'd be pretty tuckered out and tired after this, like throwing everyone out of the temple. And, yet, what's he do? He continues until evening teaching in the temple. On that picture, you don't have to go back to it, but there's the portico, there's the porch with the columns on the outside. People would gather. And it says the crowds hung on every one of his words as he taught, teaching daily in the temple. Jesus was focused until his dying breath on the eternal. Even on the cross, what's he do? He looks over at the person next to him. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. All the way to his last breath. You see, Jesus was passionate about teaching and sharing about the kingdom Not of this world, but the next. And this is what made him a powerful force. This is what makes us a powerful force. So what's the reaction? What was Jesus, what what can we take as a reaction to this is, you see Jesus' faithful focus on the mission of the gospel. His faithful focus on the mission of the gospel. Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus' final words to his disciples. All authority is given to me. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The reason that Jesus was so effective in what he did was because he spoke truth. He taught truth, and he lived truth. That was what he was all about. He experienced other things in life, family, work all the things that we experience, but he was focused in an intense way on the gospel and the mission of the gospel to make God's name known and famous among the nations. And so an encounter with Jesus made everyone choose a certain path. Like people didn't get away like, oh, it was Jesus, that was a cool hangout today. It was really interesting. No, they always had to come back to, what do I do with this? What do I do with this man? What is he all about? Who is he? An encounter with Jesus will always cause a reaction, and and that's the amazing, when he said to his disciples, all authority is given to me, it was like he was passing off the baton. He was basically giving them an invitation to influence others, and he's saying, here's, all authority is given to me, and now I am giving you this authority to go do what I've done. Now go change the world. Go impact the world. Go make a difference, and just like today. Some of the people that encountered Jesus on this day as he cleansed the temples, some of them chalked it off as just a, man, that was a weird dude, and that's like, what just happened? It was just a historical event for them. Others, we know, rejected it completely and will join in just a few days the angry crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. There's a hardening there of the heart. And then others, because of this event and many others leading into this, will post-resurrection, post-ascension say, I'm going to give my life to him. I'm going to go follow what he did. I'm going to go make disciples. I'm going to go change the world. If you're here today and, you know, this, this whole idea, I mean, this is such a beautiful gospel picture of what took place. The cleansing of the temple, the cleansing of what Christ, what he did on the cross. It's just the whole purpose was redemption of the human heart that had rejected God. So if there's questions that you have today or things that you would love to unpack, I encourage you to come up, speak with me. I'll be right down um, before. You will take precedence over the bike shop people, okay? Um, come, ask any questions. This is the most important thing in your life, okay, is what you do with Jesus. When you're confronted with truth, you can either harden your heart or humbly submit and say, yes, I want to follow you because I know you will change my heart. And then for believers, what a powerful reminder today about the power of the gospel in our lives. Amen? I mean the gospel has transformed our lives and out of that gives us some good questions say how am i really worshiping it's easy to get caught up in some of those things that were going on in the temple like where my worship kind of becomes secondary to everything else going on i mean coming for the passover was a big deal you had to plan travel you had to plan the logistics of what you were going to bring who you were going to bring You had to get there and then you had to figure out, okay, where do I go? How do I do this? This was a big thing. And oftentimes I think we as believers get distracted and God's just sitting there saying, who cares? It's not about that. It's about me. I'm here. Worship me. This is what it's all about. It's not about those other things. And so I just ask, is there some corruption cleansing that needs to happen in your heart? Let's go out this week and just in closing with the authority given to us by Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that claim it's like, Jesus was just all about love. And he was. But you see a picture like this, and I mean, amazing. He was also about holiness and true worship. And he proved it in this moment where this is the last event of his life. And he's going to go in there and he's saying, I am God. I am divine. I am the authority of thing that matters in this world and so we as we leave here and go out of here this morning that's the authority by which we live by now we have the amazing holy spirit that helps us with that so it's not our own power but let's just rest and then go out and live in the fact that we have the authority that has been passed off to us by jesus himself to live holy lives of true worship let's pray father god we love you We thank you for the power of your word. God, it is so powerful. And this story this morning that we just watched unfold, God, I know, thank you for teaching me through this passage over the last few weeks, God, where it took something in my mind that was just kind of a little snippet of of what Jesus did to just an amazing picture of your divine authority, God, here on this earth. And even in the, the heavenly places, God. Thank you for... Jesus humbly submitting himself, God, and living a life that um, was all about the kingdom. So, God, if you're working in someone's life here this morning and the gospel is, is penetrating them and drawing them to yourself, God, I pray that through your spirit's power you would draw them this morning to yourself and save them. God, if for us that are, are children of you, God, I pray that if there is purification that needs to take place, God, where we, we are worshiping other things right now and we need to get back to just putting you where you belong, and make our lives about what you want us to do. God, I pray that you would do that this morning and work in us even as we sing this last song. God, thank you for the opportunity to worship today. In your name, amen.